Hello, welcome to the Classical Music Pod. My name is Tim and this is Sam sitting opposite me. We've got an operatic double bill, a slice of Slovakian music history and an outside orchestra bringing music to the masses. Good news from our friends up north. Leeds College of Music has removed its audition fees for all courses starting in September 2020 in a bid to improve the accessibility of conservatoire training for prospective students from all backgrounds. This is brilliant news. And what's even better is that they're offering to refund travel expenses for applicants for low-income households. Professor Joe Wilson, the Vice President and Director of Curriculum, says everyone has a right to arts education and should be able to pursue their ambition based on their talent and creativity without the costs of audition being a barrier to success. I completely agree. This is the one, one of the first barriers that people from low-income households are going to have to get in to what feels like an incredible, what is an incredibly exclusive world. And I hope that there are other conservatoires that follow suit. Another educational establishment that's in the news, but for all the wrong reasons this time, is King's College Cambridge. Mm. Paul Rimmer, an astrochemist, which sounds like a great job, at Cambridge University, was ordered to leave a church service at King's College because his autistic son was being noisy. Uh, He has subsequently received an assurance from the Dean that the chapel will strive to be a more welcoming and open place. But it's not a good headline for Kings. Absolutely not. Rimmer actually uh, published online a pretty scathing letter that was written to King's College Dean and Stephen Cherry. It's a wonderful letter, but I think that there is a genuine challenge here for performance spaces and classical music in general as we become more inclusive, and that is obviously the right thing to be doing. How do you marry that with a desire to share a incredibly high quality listening experience? Not necessarily the performance, but the focus and intent from the listening and how those things line up. Yeah, it's not easy to marry the two. And I think it'll be an interesting next few years in which mm. we see how this kind of thing develops. Someone who we will certainly be seeing a lot more of over the next few years is Andrei Kimich, 31-year-old Ukrainian who on Saturday was announced as the winner of the BBC Cardiff Singer of the World competition 2019. Kimich performed pieces by Bizet, Rachmaninoff and Donizetti at the final, which was held last night in St David's Hall, Cardiff, and the competition's patron, Dame Kiri Tikanawa, presented him with a huge £20,000 prize. I like to think it would have been one of the novelty ones. Mm, yeah, yeah, me too. Maybe some of that money could have gone into Instead, to the Milton Keynes Chamber Orchestra, who are having a tougher time. Today will be their final concert after 44 years in existence, which is really sad. It's very sad times indeed. In brighter news, Andromat. Is it Andromat? Andermat? Andermat. Andermat, which sounds like a washing machine brand, is in fact a ski resort in the Swiss Alps, have opened a brand new concert hall, the first purpose-built arts venue in an alpine ski village. And they unveiled the new concert hall with a concert by the Berlin Philharmonic, conducted by Konstantinos Karidis. Have I said that right? I don't know. But, I mean, it certainly can't be more wrong than the idea of building a concert hall up a mountain. Yeah, I think the idea is to attract tourism, but... uh, What about the avalanches? I mean, concert halls don't attract tourism in cities, let alone up a 300-mile windy road. They might be going for the skiing. Maybe. 
closer to home, the UK has produced its first ever parliamentary string quartet. They gave a recital this week in the House of Commons. The statutory instruments are an ensemble uh, of Labour MP Thangam Debonair, Channel 4 news presenter Cathy Newman. Wow, we love Cathy, don't we? We do. Councillor Catherine Cheeber and Emily Benn former general election candidate and granddaughter of former Labour MP Tony Benn. They were given permission to play Debussy's string quartet in G minor in the chamber on Tuesday by John Burker, who's just doing whatever he likes. I wonder if he would have permitted any other works, or whether it was specifically that I one. I think it was that one. It's his favourite. We'll leave it there for now, and I hope there are no further points of order. There's an Arsenal match on television very soon. You can watch them play the Debussy in the House of Commons in the link in the description below. And if you want to see them live, they'll be giving a concert on the 2nd of July at Westminster. That's very spicy, Tim. Speaking of spicy and indeed all-female groups, Jerry Horner, nay, Halliwell, has apologised for quitting the Spice Girls in 1998 at their gig the other day. Which place was that? Not less gig. She was at it, yeah. yeah, okay. I'm sorry. I'm sorry I left. I was just being a brat, which is a pretty big climb down. Imagine we were all prepared to admit our mistakes like that. It'd be terrific. <laughs> how, how good of her. Hard segue here to sexual harassment news. It is, after all, James Levine's birthday. Former ENO guest conductor Stephen Lord has been accused in the US of sexual harassment and has stepped down this week at the Michigan Opera Theatre. Stephen Lord's actions emerged during a year-long investigation by the US magazine Arts Reader into sexual harassment and abuse in the US opera industry. Coming up are a selection of actual things he has said to people. If you sleep with me, you would have so many jobs... I could cast you in so many things. I could make or break your career. If only you'd slept with me. Oh, God. Stephen Lord has issued a statement in his defence. He said, I could fight all of this and I still might. Yesterday I had two of the world's most famous opera singers, one from Moscow, even Call, and three former employers. These are friends and people with whom I have lived and who know me inside and out, and they were in tears, seeing their friend assassinated. So we wait on tenderhooks to see the result of the investigation. And finally, a bit of good news from an improbable source of André Rieu, the violinist who you see on adverts sometimes dressed up like Beast from Beauty and the Beast doing sort of Viennese waltzes, and he somehow become a multimillionaire off the back of that. Mm. But he was using his power and profile in a good way this week, Tim. Yes, Mr Rieu read in a morning paper that a thief had stolen the truck containing the instruments of an orchestra of musicians with mental disabilities. And so distressed was Mr. Rue that he coughed up a bunch of cash to help pay for new instruments and he said, my heart broke when I read on the Telegraph website that this group of musicians had been robbed of all their instruments. So good on you. Thank you, Andre. Red. Analysis. Today I've got a piece that I've been on a bit of a journey with. I first sang it when I was about 17 or 18 and thought it was one of the most exciting things ever and couldn't believe humans could make noises like this. Uh, Then I did it a bit to death at university, became a bit snobbish about it and thought it was terribly passé. And now I'm coming back round to it in quite an affectionate way. Today I'm looking at Eric Whittaker's Lux Aramque.
some of my resentment towards this choral piece, or motet, certainly came from a place of envy towards its composer, the incredibly handsome and golden-maned Eric Whittaker. He's handsome. Yeah, and he's a multimillionaire. Uh, I'm hoping one day to forgive Jacob Collier for his success as well. I still haven't. No, nowhere near. But Eric does also do some slightly weird things that people go after him for, like translating an English poem called Light and Gold into the Latin form Luxorumque. If you wanted to be mean, you could parody it by taking a ludicrous sentence like quicker than you can cook asparagus and make it sound superficially beautiful in Latin like this. If you were feeling mean. If. Another rod with which to beat Eric is his favouring of a small selection of supremely smushy chords. I'm told in Cambridge there's a carol writing competition called I Can't Believe It's Not Rutter. And not to John Rutter, who has a very consistent style. If you wanted to play Whittaker or Pistaker, it might sound like this. Good king, Good king when But there's a reason for that consistency, and I've got actual data on it. We have been experiencing a harmonic amplification effect. There are 1,474 possible chords with between three and seven pitches in them. Oh, yeah, obviously. <laughs> Eric uses only 17%, 245 of those available. It feels like a really narrow selection for a modern composer. Yeah, I think probably for a modern composer it is. And overwhelmingly, he uses chords with either four or five different pitches in them. Uh, it's 158 of his 245 chords. Mm. And weirdly, only three of the chords he ever has used contain a semitone cluster, which would sound like this. Instead, he uses softer dissonances more like this. One of the cool things about Luxorumque is where we get the triads and where we get the soft dissonances. The piece opens with a two-note chord, suggesting a C-sharp minor triad, and then it moves to a dissonance, which includes all the notes from that chord and the chord of the dominant, G-sharp major. Normally, these two chords would come one after the other to confirm the key that we're in, to give us a sense of where our home is. But instead, he overlays them. This choral expansion he calls the breathing motif, and it's at once static and in motion. So does he do this all the time? Well, no. Uh, this is the opening harmony for Eric's piece Sleep, a different one, and it doesn't have the same effect. Instead, it confirms the harmony in a much more conventional, hymn-like way. is a little bit outside of Eric's normal wheelhouse then and I think that the ending helps reinforce that it's a little bit special how so? there's this magical moment at the end the sopranos hold one note and the choir shifts harmony to the unusual tonic major underneath but crucially it just keeps moving the shifting harmony gives us motion and the held note gives us something static I think the genius of this piece is the ability to have both of those feelings in balance at once here's what it sounds like
In the year 2009, Eric Whitaker saw the future and he got YouTube involved. His virtual choir invited people across the world to sing one of the vocal parts and these were then combined with an on-stage choir in performance. Something fixed and something unchanging. Something recorded and something live and spontaneous. It really reminds me of those photos where they've left the shutter open a bit too long and maybe it's in like a sports event and you see all the blurriness. The famous one I'm thinking of is Usain Bolt as he wins the 100 metres yeah. and he sort of smiles across at the camera and everything is blurred around him except his cheeky face. I think that's what Eric's managed to capture here in that combination of movement and stasis. Similarly, it's my opinion on Eric's piece that has been moving. It's been evolving over this time and now I've come full circle and I really enjoy it. The piece has remained completely unchanged. He hasn't updated it since. It's just I've evolved as a human being. And I think as audiences, we should all have license to do that, to like something one week and you know, dislike it the next. And of course, we took the mickey out of Eric at the beginning for his text. But that's what it all boils down to. The text means light and gold. Something moving at a squillion million miles per hour and then the other so inert and unreactive, it's practically static. Personal chat. Personal chat. Drop it, it isn't worth it, and actually, you're not very good at it. On Sunday the 23rd, I took a field trip to Union Street to talk to members of the Street Orchestra Live. Here's how it went. We are Street Orchestra Live. (laughs) And we are back to take a musical adventure. I'm here at the Great Get Together on Union Street near Borough Tube Station and in a moment the Street Orchestra Live are going to be giving us a performance. Just before that I'm going to go and have a quick chat with a few members of the orchestra. So I'm joined with Chloe here at Union Street. Hi. So Chloe, you're, you're one of two conductors. Yes, yes, yes. So I've just joined for this summer season with Seoul. And um, we did, obviously, a festival back at Sound Unbound at the Barbican, and now yeah. we're here today. How did that go? Um, yeah, I mean, great. The, the reception was amazing. Um, Seoul has a really good base in London, yeah. and I think that really showed in the audiences that came and yeah. just how much support we had. And there was a lot of sort of friendly faces coming up and saying, oh, we saw you two, you know, a year ago, and it's so great to see you again. Yeah. So you joined the orchestra, what, only a couple of months? Or was it very yes, recent? yes, no, that was my first tour. Then I joined you. I've come on board as assistant conductor, um, so working with Heist, and um, yeah. So can you give us a, a, a quick brief outline about your sort of remit, what, what you guys are trying to do? What, what... So we're music, music for everyone, anywhere. Let's get these mixed up. Um, <laughs> but it really is about just bringing music to people where they're at. Yeah. So going into places where music wouldn't be usually and bringing different kinds of music, really looking at what programming is and how we can create programs where we get people to listen to Mozart, but but also alongside popular music and things that they'd already know. So they, they'll come and they'll hear Uptown Funk and they'll come and have a listen and then they'll stay and they'll hear some Mendelssohn. And what, what are you performing um, today? What, what's... We're doing a huge mix of things. We're doing about eight different songs. I don't want to give too much no, away, yeah, but course, we'll, we'll be doing a bit of Mozart and some Mendelssohn in there. And Wonderful. I think the, the, the uptown funk might also be in there. Okay, well, I look forward to it. Yeah. Chloe, thank you very much for speaking to me, and good luck. Thank with you. The gig. I'm here with Hannah Fiddy, who is the marketing manager of the, the orchestra. We're 
go with uh, marketing, press, and tour manager. Oh, okay. So all, all encompassing. <laughs> Lots of things. And chef it's as well. It's a small team. And yeah. chef, yes. So, so you, you, were, you were telling me just now that the orchestra is based on a Dutch model and that the conductor is Dutch himself, the principal conductor. Yeah, so it started in Amsterdam. It's an ensemble called the Ricciotti Ensemble. And they've been going for a good 20 years. Um, and they're very well established and have been touring around uh, lots of places, including the UK, yeah. um, over the last 20 years. Um, and Hayes, who is our conductor, came over to the UK and started Street Orchestra Live uh, about three years ago. Yeah. Um, one of the other ensemble members moved to Scotland and has started the Nevis Ensemble. Um, so street orchestras are growing around the world. Yeah. It's very exciting. And, and what you, you, they don't all come from London, is that's what so I find. Yeah, so we purposefully don't just um, invite London musicians to apply. Um, so we extend our call out across the UK and we audition people by videos that um, anyone can be a part of it. Um, and the whole point is that we're going to try and take music to as many places across the UK, especially places that don't tend to have as much arts provision. Yeah. Um, and London tends to have a lot. And, and these players, what really amazes me is these players are obviously you're covering, you're covering their travel and their costs, but you're not, but they're playing, essentially playing for free. They're playing for free and they absolutely love it because they get an experience completely different from what they would get in any other kind of orchestra or ensemble that they might yeah. play in. Just the kind of locations that they get to visit and the audiences they get to play for. Yeah, of course. So it's really exciting. And I suppose the downside of that is that you have to make all of their lunches. And <laughs> we do. We have to make all their lunches. So it's curry for 40. Oh, um, wow. Hey. Well, yeah, no, that's good. So good it's lots of chopping. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, well um, Hannah, thank you very much for talking to you. And uh, good luck with the rest no of the No problem. Course. Thank you very much. Claudia, Hi. leader of the street orchestra. I guess, yeah. Street orchestra. Uh, what, what are you guys doing here today? So our motto is uh, music for anyone everywhere. Yeah. Uh, and that's what we do really. We go to places where people might not be able to experience uh, orchestral music, classical music, or just live music in general. Uh, and we try to bring it to people so that they can experience that joy. And we get a lot of joy doing it. How long have you been part of the orchestra now? So I've been playing with the orchestra since the beginning of this year. The orchestra's been going for quite a few years now uh, and it's I'm so excited to be able to join them and to work with them. It's really one of the highlights of my sort of working career really. Yeah, yeah. So you, you guys were in Oxford earlier this week. We were, you, yeah. You? It was last month. We were in Oxford last, last month. month. Yeah, yeah. How did that no, go down? Sorry, it was earlier. It was so. this week, I swear. Ah! <laughs> my, oh gosh, when you do this thing, we go to so many places, yeah. it gets very confusing in your mind. We were in Oxford yesterday, it feels like a lifetime ago, yeah. but it was yesterday. How did it go? How did, it, how did it the was, audience, the crowd like it? It was wonderful. Um, I think my favourite is when we go to places like hospitals and hospices, and we went to the John Radcliffe Hospital yesterday, and uh, we had the great experience of uh, a patient came out, and it was his birthday. And so we played happy birthday to him, and he came and conducted the orchestra. And uh, it's really great when you can see them sort of light up and really get something from it. And, you know, a place like a hospital, obviously so much is going on, and you don't know what people are going through at the time. And all you can do really is be there and just try and offer them something that might brighten their day even just a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. Claudia, thank you very much for being to us. Good luck with the, um, with the, the concert. Thank you. And I'll look forward to listening. <laughs>
That was the sound of Alexander Moises. Was he perchance cast away in a wicker basket as a child and went on to lead the Hebrews out of Egypt? No. This Moises was born in 1906 in Slovakia and grew up to be a near-romantic composer. His output sounds a bit like Arnold Bax, if you're familiar with that, but I understand that's quite a niche reference. He's described as one of the three leading Slovakian composers of his generation. But uh, maybe that's not the biggest brag in the world. If it was Germany or France, maybe uh, that would have a bit more clout. And what does he write? Well, uh, a little bit of chamber music, but mostly it's symphonies, and 12 of them, which is good going. Most people only get to 9 or 10 and then they die. This disc completes Naxos's recording of all 12. So well done, Naxos. It's some pretty attractive stuff, sort of romantic melodic symphony writing with kind of conventional forms number 11 has four movements and number 12 has three with a sort of fused pair kind of like Beethoven 5 he does have some really distinctive moments but as a melodic symphonist with all that kind of whirling motif stuff it's a shame that none of them have actually stuck in my head not even one not even one and I've been listening to it all week Um, I don't know if it's a product of him being a bit too spacious maybe you know sometimes we say that a piece needs a bit more space to unfurl and like take the time actually this is the opposite I think stuff is it loses its continuity needs a bit of chiselling does it it needs a bit of chiselling Tim is what Mm. it does but my favourite anyway is the first of the 11th symphony it has uh, things that you can really hang on to as an audience and remember back to touchstones touchstones mm. Mm. There's, it opens with this timpani like approaching sort of a steam train getting closer and closer just the same note boom 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 coming after you and I couldn't believe how loud the crescendo got it was really uh, impressive playing and impressive recording that sort of fate kind of motif yeah. feeling that then recurs throughout the rest of the movement. The other real pleasure that I took from this movement is that it ends in exactly the right place. Quite often, first movements of symphonies, I feel like composers, they keep going, keep building up, and you get this enormous finale to the first movement. And then when you come to the fourth movement, it doesn't feel like the symphony has reached those heights again. But in this case, he's kept his powder a bit drier. Absolutely, and he he just finishes it. So who's playing and who's waving at them and should we be seeking them out in the future when they play in the UK? Ladislav Slovak conducts the Slovak Radio Orchestra. Quite a strong Slovakian theme here. If I'm honest, I can't really tell who's having an influence on who because I don't know the playing of that orchestra at all. They sound pretty good. I don't know whether that's them being brilliant and the conductor looking the wrong way or what. You can't tell on a disc, right? But um, actually it comes across really rather well. The clarinets make a beautiful sound and, as I said earlier, the timpani player really impressed me. I think there are the odd moments where you can tell that you're not listening to a top, top tier orchestra, uh, particularly tuning. It's slightly under every now and then. Yeah, actually, it's the um, the brass, when they mute, they it makes the instrument slightly shorter. Oh, so, so you get slightly sharper. Yeah, yeah and it, just stuff like that. You're like, oh, that feels... What, for an orchestra that sounds so good the rest of the time, why isn't that yeah. also there? But the best thing about the disc, really, is the sound recording. You just feel like you are in the room. And apparently that is the work of Hubert Gishvander. So thank you, Top Work Hubert. Yeah, good job, Hubert. In conclusion, I think you can see, or hear more pertinently, why this piece actually hasn't made it into the canon of generally performed works. I think there's a level of storytelling missing here. You do get that higher level with some of the other peripheral figures around Europe who have pushed their way into regular performance. You know, you're... Vorjak's, Janacek's, Scribin's, Pets, none of them were born in Germany or France, Austria, but they've muscled their way in. I think 
that there is a reason for that, and there's probably probably a reason why Moises hasn't. But if you want to expand your listening horizons a little bit further, there's plenty to enjoy here. It's probably just not a desert island that's in. Tim, tell me about Tosca. I went to see Tosca at the Royal Opera House as a present, birthday present from my brother. Isn't that nice? Nice he fella. Will no doubt be listening. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Ben. Starring Amanda Eschelaz as Tosca, who is a South African. Uh, she actually represented South Africa in the 2005 BBC Cardiff Singer of the World competition. Oh, cool. There you go. And Vittorio Grigolo played Cavaradossi. He was born in Arozzo and raised in Rome and... He is utterly t- Italian in every way, just to look at and listen to. It's <laughs> hilarious. And he actually played the shepherd boy in Tosca when he was a little boy himself at, for Rome Opera. And then we had Marco Vragtona. I don't think I'm saying that right either. No. No, but he was Scarpia. And Alexander Joel, an English conductor with the, the conductor, <laughs> the orchestra, the roll-up house. Uh, so I think what I'm going to do is I'm just going to pinpoint three moments in the opera that resonate especially with me because it is a work that I know very well. It's bragging. It's it's a yes, <laughs> I love it basically, and and it was a real treat to see it. So the first moment I'm going to pick was the, is the Te Deum, Ooh. which comes at the end of Act One, and that features bells, church bells, and an organ, and it's also featured in Quantum of Solace, James Bond. Is that the bit when he sort of is moving around backstage and then... Yeah, yeah. really high drama moment in the film and he discovers that all of these people in the audience are working for this secret evil organisation. It's a rare moment of drama in that film which was basically made without any writers. Indeed, yes. So Scarpia is setting out his intentions to seduce Tosca and kill Cavaradossi and it is a toe-curlingly evil scene. He basically... What makes it more all the more evil is he appropriates Pacini's love theme for Cavaradossi and Tosca as he sings on the words, one to the gallows, the other to my arms. So that's quite a sort of a musical depiction of him coming quite literally between the two. Yeah. Which is quite a powerful moment. It's like a parasite. And it finishes (laughs) with several repeats. This uh, The act one finishes with uh, three, four repeats of the Scarpia theme, which is these three wonderfully distinctive chords and F major, E flat to B major and I'll play it now quickly. Evil sounding. They are very evil sounding and if there's one criticism as I, I would have of Vretonia it's that he could have hammed up the evil even more. There's a fantastic video of Bryn Terfel on YouTube and he's almost licking his lips in anticipation to seduce Tosca and kill Cavadoss. <laughs> it's horrible. And what it makes it all the more evil is the juxtaposition of the choristers and the priests up in the gallery of the church and the set and the sound of the church bells and the organ in the background. It just makes it all the more terrifying. Mm. My second gem in the opera is Tosca's wonderful aria, Visidiat. And she opens the aria by saying, I have lived for art. And she goes on to lament that she's never harmed a living soul, non feci mai male ad anima viva. And this is ironic considering the murder she's actually about to commit. <laughs> and there's definitely a sense in this aria which is brought out very well by Amanda Eletcher's dark and dreamy tone that all is not quite as it seems. I think this is the genius of Puccini, the libretto, is that Tosca is by no means a one-dimensional one-dimensional character. She's actually a strong, complex woman, and she's willing to fight injustice and pay the price if it all goes wrong. Mm. This is also the point where I think Alexander Joel and the orchestra of the Royal Opera House came into their own. They were clearly 
absolutely enjoying themselves and giving acres of space to Eschelaz and, and really fizzing in the strings to give that hyper-romantic, thick yeah. sound. Yeah. The final gem is the tenor aria, Cavardotti's aria, in Act 3, Et Lucevan Listele, where he's coming to terms with his last hour on Earth on the roof of the Castel Sant'Angelo. And this is one that I musically know very well. I've sung it lots of times in the shower. And there were no <laughs> surprises in terms of its monumental beauty and power. And that haunting opening clarinet net melody gets me every time, as does the top A climax. What struck me this time was the magic of the libretto, something I hadn't noticed before, because Grigolo is an Italian, and he literally grew up with the opera, as I said, he was a, yeah. played the shepherd boy, and he's watched masters perform this role over and over again. And he's got a, complete, a profound insight into Mario's despair at that very moment. And he really managed to bring out that nostalgia and devastation behind what are very beautiful words uh, with a real care and an understanding. And that added a fresh angle for me. And I think it really provides uh, evidence for the fact that an Italian singing, an Italian role, you can't really beat it, I would say. <laughs> uh, just to give a taste of the words. That, and the stars were shining and the earth was scented. The gate of the garden creaked and a footstep grazed the sand. Fragrance she entered and fell into my arms. And it's hyper-nostalgic. And yeah. And interesting that you came away so influenced by the libretto when so often the thing that overwhelms everybody is the beauty of the sound and the melodies mm. of Puccini Opera. So Especially considering it was the words coming up on the screen and I sort of had to look up and read it as well. But yeah. despite that, it was very powerful. The last thing I would say about this performance is the fantastic set design, which is Paul Brown, the late Paul Brown. He died in 2017, uh, only 57. It's very ornate. Uh, it reminded me a little bit of the Opera House dungeon in the film of The Phantom of the Opera, you know, with the <laughs> candles all around. And I, and I, partly that might have been because Louis Weber clearly stole the melody for the Cavaradossi and Tosca's love melody from the beginning, the duet from the beginning, and used it in As All I Ask of You in Phantom Opera. So check out the comparison there if you get a moment. That I was wonderful. It it was Gosh, great. isn't it lovely? Thanks, Guy Withers is with me. I am, yeah. Surrounded by incense smoke. It was a lovely welcome. And overly strong tea, I apologise. But... No, I like it strong. Oh, good. Well, thank yeah. you very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having it's me. A pleasure to see, it's a pleasure to meet you. Yes. Now, you are the artistic director or creative director what's your official title festival director festival director but i sort of just look after it all really. look after it water perry yes opera and that's it's oxfordshire am i right yes like south oxfordshire just off the m40 so about mm -hmm. like 50 minutes from london lovely and on the 25th to the 8th of july this year mm, 25th to the 28th yes 28th <laughs> you, you'll be putting on said opera uh, said opera festival can you take me through the program first of all yeah, totally. So we have, over four days, six different shows. Mm -hmm. Magic Flute by Mozart, in English. Uh, the Fairy Queen by Purcell, a new version of The Fairy Queen by yeah. Purcell. Uh, Mansfield Park by Jonathan Dove. Uh, it's a revival of our show from last year. 
the same for Peter Rabbit's Musical Adventure, which is a family show which we did last year again and which we're bringing back mm. by popular demand, as well as two new young artist shows. Uh, one is a dramatisation of Abraham and Isaac by Benjamin Britten, and the other is a devised work based on Shakespeare text and Shakespeare music. Yeah. So, called Dream. Why is the Fairy Queen different this year? You say it was different. Well, oh God, it's a tricky piece because uh, everyone knows Shakespeare's Midsummer Night's Dream and yeah. they know the characters, they know the story and some people have heard of the Fairy Queen but don't really know what it is. And that's because it's not really an opera. I think it's called a mask if you look up the Wikipedia page. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, well, the fountain of all knowledge. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it must be correct if it's on there. Yeah, yeah totally. Um, and so the Fairy Queen was written as sort of like musical interlude, like operatic interlude, between the acts of Shakespeare's Midsummer Night's Dream. So Purcell came along like 100 years after Shakespeare wrote the play and was like, hmm, let's make this huge sort of operatic spectacular by putting Shakespeare's play there and in between every act we'll like see more of the fairies and like yeah. have some nice songs or whatever. So as a piece by itself, the Fairy Queen isn't a cohesive thing. Yeah. It's just like a series of beautiful songs and dances and masks and doesn't have a narrative, but it has characters like Bottom and Titania and all the fairies in it. So we wanted to effectively use the Shakespeare source material and the, the folklore origins of, of that story and the beautiful music of Purcell to, rather than sort of amalgamate a version of the Fairy Queen, instead try and write a new story inspired by all those things that felt like a cohesive beautiful piece of theatre and so yeah we have the characters of Titania and Oberon and Puck but actually the story that we tell is almost like a, a reimagined version of the story we know about the changing child about Titania and Oberon fighting and, and Puck having to run around and basically solve all the issues what was behind the idea of bringing back the dove for a second year? Was it just because it would, it just went so well last year? Well, again, like, yeah, so it's our second year. And, like, for the first year, basically, Waterbury is a, a, gl- a glorious site. It has a beautiful house uh, and in that a, a gorgeous ballroom. And when we decided we were, we were going to do a festival and worked with the site, we said, look, we've got this ballroom. I mean, like, we must do something with it. Mm. Why don't we do Mansfield Park? It's a, it's a work that Rebecca, who also runs the festival and myself, no, and it was a piece that was originally written, not for a theatre, but written by Jonathan Dove, composed by him to be performed in country house spaces. In that setting? Yeah. I didn't realise that. Yeah. I mean, isn't that amazing? Like, mm. for a composer to say, hang on a minute, I don't want this for a theatre. I want this to be, to be a piece that feels lived in, that, you know, that people sort of are surrounded by the, 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 the smells, the sights, everything of, of uh, Regency world and to have the Jane Austen come alive. So... That's why we did Mansfield Park originally. Um, but in a ballroom, it's not a theatre. Like, it only seats 80 people. And the immersive nature of the show means that, again, it, it's quite limited to um, sort of the, the space we have and all that sort of thing. So we only did two performances yeah. and they sold out. Well, yeah, it's so, a waste not to bring it back. Uh, yeah, in, totally. Yeah. And so there's part of it of us saying, well, you know, we'd love to share it with more people. Mm. Yeah, so this year we're doing four. We've doubled the amount of shows. I'm intrigued about how the initial process of setting up a country mm. opera festival was it absolutely bonkers at the time i mean and and this time around is it are there things that you've learned or things that you've done differently oh my god so much i've learned 
I mean, country house opera is a well-known thing. Yeah. So there's elements of that which I love. I love the site-specific nature of it. I love that it's not in an urban environment. I love that the work you can create is inspired by the outdoors and that the people that you bring together are coming together to make this work rather than just like commuting in on the district line. Mm. So there's something really special about that. Also, it was an opportunity for us to develop a festival based on new ideas that we had and the ways in which we wanted our artists to work together and for audience to experience things the way we thought it should mm. be. So it's sort of a, an opportunity to reinvent the wheel a little bit there as well. What kind of things do you think that you've brought to the, the country opera scene that might be a bit different to somebody that's thinking of going to Glyndebourne or to the yeah, totally. Park? Or? Well, it's totally different. Well, yes, it's similar, but also it's totally different. Right, yeah. I guess at the heart of this is the fact that the site, Waterbury site, is got a wonderful history of art festivals, of horticultural education, of residencies, of meditation and economics and philosophy. So as a site, it, it's very rich. And so when they approached us and we talked to them about trying to set up something, it was the starting point was about serving community and was never about lofty ambitions about starting a festival or about wanting to do certain operas. It was about, there's a community here that... that wants to engage in music making and yeah. wants to see performances and can we do that for them mm. um, and we have this amphitheatre which is crazy like they built an amphitheatre before we were there like 10 years ago can we use that to host shows and, and can we sort of develop a programme of events that's not just opera but lots of other things mm. and so that was what I think allowed us to from the very beginning build something very new Tell me about this young artists program that you're doing with mm. Abraham and Isaacs and Dream. So, as I, I'm a singer too. Yeah. So <clears throat> I've been through a lot of this already, and not to say I have all the answers, but I do know that sometimes young artists programs or even like development programs either tacked on or, or that. Oh, it's a bit of an afterthought. Yeah, yeah, totally. And so when we started this, we thought, hang on, let, this is an opportunity to if if. You know, we are true to our word and that what our festival is about is about involving community. Let's put young artists or developing artists at the centre of that. So last year we designed our young artist programme and now it's grown. And it's not only singers, of which there are a number on the on the programme, it's it's stage managers this year, it's designers, it's musical directors, it's costume assistants and young producers. So it's a basically it's a it's a whole programme that enables creatives of all sorts to I guess, learn uh, and be mentored and, and have opportunities and have responsibilities. And, mm. and so part of that this year is two young artist shows. One is Abraham and Isaac and one is a new piece devised called Dream. Mm. And they're very different and they offer different opportunities to the creative teams that are working on them. Abraham and Isaac is, I'm not sure if you know it, but it's Canticle 2 by Benjamin Britten. Now, Benjamin Britten, he wrote these five canticles um, they're effectively songs, but they're so huge in scale that they don't feel like songs. They feel like larger scenes. They feel like sort of works that want to sort of burst forth from the page. And one of them is Canticle 2, Abraham and Isaac, the story of Abraham and Isaac, yeah. you know, the sacrifice. And it's a duet between a tenor and a countertenor or a mezzo. And effectively, 17-minute Shana of Abraham having to try and kill his child. Mm. Now, that speaks to me immediately as something that, is dramatic and operatic yeah and it excites me because i love the idea that opera can be more than something that's just in a proscenium 
or Pross Arch, whatever, yeah. and we go to the opera, we go to Glyndebourne, or we go to the Opera House and see something beautiful, you know, Boris Godunov or whatever. What, there's there's room for that, but there's also room to say, well, what can opera be for us? It just means music drama. So why can't it be this? And yeah. why can't it be, in terms of dream, a devised work that's based on lots of different things? And to have together, we're going to explore those themes and make a work that has music and theatre at its heart. What kind of how much involvement are you having in, artistically with with each individual production? Are you right in there in the thick of it, bossing people around and and saying no? Oh, I don't know. I wonder if they sound bossy. Maybe I am. <laughs> they didn't tell me if I if I, if I am though. Um, well, so we're growing as an organisation. So we're, we're relatively young, and so ultimately we don't have huge teams that other organisations do have. So I'm very much involved in sort of nitty gritty of a lot of it. But effectively, what I and the, my small team do is, I guess, pick the people we want to be involved in these projects, whether that's cast or whether that's individual creatives, directors, mm. or designers, and say, "Look, here's the what we what we love you to do. Make yeah. this, please, and, and and go off and and do it." So, really, my role is I see it more, hopefully, as a facilitator. What, what's next? Are you, are you intending to grow and to build upon it and extend it in terms of days or? I mean, what's the plan what, what, for coming up in the future? Well, th- this is this is like the big question, right? You know, once you start something and it goes really well, how do you decide how it grows? And does it grow in length? Does it grow up? Does it grow out? Mm. What and trying to keep at the centre of it, what's the most important thing? Yeah, um, we discovered what we really loved was the fact that it was sort of a Glastonbury meets Glyndebourne yeah. feel, and so you could see something pretty much any time of the day. And if you came for the whole day, you could see lots of different things. Most of it was. Actually, a lot of it's free, but we, we put on talks and masterclasses and things you can see. And then you can go and see a big opera for sure. And so I think, actually, we're not going to really grow out mm. that much, but, but really just sort of build the infrastructure, yeah. build the community and build... Taller rather than wider. Yeah, that's it. Really. I, so I'm glad you said that, because that was one of the things when I was doing my sort of bit of background research yesterday, is that it, it, it is only... Well, it's three days, basically, isn't it? Or it's four, yeah, four, four days. It's a 25th long, or 28th. Long yeah. weekend. Yeah. And I think that's... That's one of the things that marks out from a lot of these other ones. Is totally. I mean, that's more of a season. Exactly, I mean, yeah. that's fine. But I, I, whenever I've had experience of going to country house opera, it's like one day you have to take off work or whatever, and you go and you have a picnic and you see one opera. And in a way, I sort of feel like that experience was bigger or, yeah. or that I could engage with the site or the people more. And so, you know, for instance, our Saturday at this festival, we've got two kids' shows in the morning, followed by... Uh, Mansfield Park in the afternoon and then a matinee of another show plus a number of talks and free mm. events uh, and then uh, free performances and then and then a big show in the evening yeah. so if you wanted to for literally about well less than uh, 60 quid or whatever you could see everything in a day by turning up at 11 o'clock <clears throat> excuse me and then leaving at 10pm exactly yeah well Guy thank you it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast thank, thank you for, you for coming all the way oh. to Loughborough Junction slash Brixton kind of and good luck with the rest of of the rehearsals, are you still rehearsing? Or we haven't started yet. Started, we okay. start on the first of July, and um, so three weeks in London, and then we, then we okay, go right, up. Yeah. 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 Well, good luck with everything. Thank you. And I will definitely be seeing you in 2020. Yes, you will. Yes, we'll yeah. get you there. Lovely. Thanks, Finish. Coming up this week. 
In fact, coming up over the next couple of months are continued performances at all the various summer opera festivals. You've got Longbow Opera, which got a good, very good write-up from Richard Bratby last week in Spectator. You've got the Garsington, you've got Glyndebourne, you've got Grange Park Opera. Bear in mind, if you are supporting Grange Park, that all three productions, Verdi's Don Carle, Gershwin's Porgy and Bess, and Humperdinck's Hansel and Gretel, are being produced by all-male creative teams with male conductors. Boo! On Wednesday the 26th, the East Nuke Festival kicks off. If you enjoyed Tim's interview with Sven McEwen-Brown, their director, a couple of weeks ago, then check that out. Michael Nyman and Mozart are being teamed up at the Bauhaus. That's up in Scotland, just over from the 1st of the 4th. That's a little tongue twister for you there. What about the 27th? At the Barbican, there will be a semi-staging of Janacek's The Cunning Little Vixen, conducted by Simon Rattle with the LSO, and I will be there. And also the Sellers Wells Theatre will be putting on The Rite of Spring by Phoenix Dance Theatre, and there is a link of the cool-looking trailer for that production in the description. Very trendy. It's also the birthday of George Walker. He would have been 97. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell us about George Walker. He was the first African-American to receive the Pulitzer Prize for Music. Significant. On Friday the 28th, Bradfield Festival of Music in Sheffield will have Pelios Ensemble performing Beamish, Ramo, Ravel and Bark in what is otherwise called a sparse Friday night mm, for music. It's sad, isn't it? Saturday the 29th, uh, Tree opens, which is part of the Manchester International Festival, and that is being created by Idris Elba and Kwame Kwame and it will blend live music, dance and film to explore the past, present and future of a contemporary South Africa. And that also stars Alfred Enoch, who was Dean from Harry Potter. You'll yeah, know, The very Alfie. long neck. <laughs> Good. Distinctive. Mm. Um, the East Newark Festival also continues with the Colin Curry Quartet, and it's also a shared birthday of Bernard Herman and Catherine Jenkins. Who knows what they would have created if they had teamed up. The 29th of June is also the anniversary of when George Edward Gouraud recorded Handel's Israel in Egypt onto Phonograph Cylinder, which is thought to be the oldest known recording of music back in 1888, I believe. Wow. Ages ago. Sunday the 30th is Esa birthday. He shares it with... Kate Ryan, Mike Tyson, David Liddington, the de facto Deputy Prime Minister, and Juan Bosch, the 43rd President of the Dominican Republic. Of course. Of course. A little bit further ahead, check out July the 9th. Evening Songs is going to be a completely magical event down in Salisbury Cathedral, led by Howard Moody. It's an amazing project from uh, Special Educational Needs School, Exeter House, the Cathedral Choir, and Wiltshire College, who are all teaming up to create a new response to the even song right uh, I went along for a visit to some rehearsals and it was one of the most rewarding days I've ever had in music we'll be releasing a little bonus pod sometime in the future focusing on that project so keep your ears open like and subscribe like and subscribe a few thank yous this week. Thank you to Hannah Fiddy from Street Orchestra Live for talking to us and getting me in touch with all of those players also, thank you to Ben for getting the ticket to Tosca. That was greatly appreciated. Thanks for Guy Withers for coming and talking to Tim, even though he was in his pyjamas. And a couple more thank yous. One to Martin at Naxos for helping us out, as always, and to Concordia Choir for their recording of Luxa Rumque. And finally, thank you to Jerry Halliwell, who is now Jerry Horner, Horner for her apology to all Spice Girl fans. Oh, oh, oh.